0: Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are in our series in Lent, and today is a conversation with Sissy Brady Rogers, and this one's called Desire and Chad. A question for you to get started with is, what is your desire? Enjoy. Uh, There was a season of New Abbey where there were only two people here who were over 50, Sissy and Rob in the back. Uh, Now, thankfully, we have a little bit more diversity of age. Thank God. All right. Yeah. I like it. If you've earned the silver hair, if it's not just a platinum bleach, you know, then uh, you got some wisdom for us. Um, Sissy is just filled with wisdom. And if you know Sissy, you know that. That she's got incredible things to say. She's got amazing life experience. I think she has depth to offer each of us. So, as we're in the season of Lent, as we're thinking about the fragility of life from dust we came into dust we return, uh, I think no better person has words for us than Sissy Brady. Rogers, everybody.
1: Desire what did it evoke in you? You know, what came up for you in that moment when the question was posed? Because what came up for you has a lot to say about your relationship with desire. And what we're really talking about this morning is our relationship with desire. Because for many of us, we have a very complicated relationship with desire, yes? And we need to figure out how do we work skillfully with desire? And if we're gonna talk about desire, we've got to talk about love, right? Because that's what we most often think about with desire is sexual desire, desire for intimacy, right? Because there's this whole desire arousal response cycle that we all experience as humans. And that's, for many of us, an area that we have complications with, yes. Um, Many people are here at New Abbey because of that very issue because you were told that your desire was wrong or sinful or bad. And even if you weren't attracted to people of your same sex, you might have still been told that your desire is sinful or wrong and bad, yes? So if we're going to talk about desire, we need to talk about love. And if I'm going to talk about love, I need to talk about Dave Rogers. Um, yeah, Dave Rogers and I learned about love together. Um, and. What I discovered by being in love is that when you're in love, how do you feel? Carbonated. <laughs> yeah, woo, effervescent. How else do you feel? Euphoric. Give me some more words. Joyful, on top of the world, brave, in. You've got the world by the tail. All things are possible, right? Because as uh, Meister Eckhart said, uh, this next quote, what keeps us alive, what allows us to endure, I think it is the hope of loving or being loved. You know, my theology has always been, we were created by love, for love, to love. Love is our deepest nature. And I think I knew that from the time I was a baby, from a childhood. You know, my desire to love and be loved really is my motivating factor in life. That may not be true for everybody, but it's a huge motivating force. And actually, love has a lot to do, and desire have a lot to do with human flourishing. Um, If we can't connect to desire, passion, and longing, we can't become who we were meant to be. If we can't connect to our own desire, passion, hunger, and longing, we can't truly find intimacy because we don't know who we are. So we might become who they want me to be. How many people have had that problem? Um, You become who the people around you or the person you're longing to have love with wants you to be, and you end up in this weird, confused state of not knowing who you are. So connecting to my desire, what I want, feel, and need is an essential part of human flourishing and development. But unfortunately, many of us have a complicated relationship with desire. Not just sexual desire, but desire of all sorts. And so if we look at scripture, one of the passages that I think has tripped a lot of us up related to desire is this one. Yes, there's some laughter in the front row, um, because words matter, and translation of words from Greek and Hebrew into English matter, as we heard last week, if any of you were here, we had a great piece about uh, the word, never mind, I'm not going to repeat that. That would be a digression, which I sometimes do. Words matter, translations matter, and interpretation matters. So how this passage got interpreted and taught to us made a difference in how we relate to desire. So I'll read the passage. Blessed is anyone who endures temptation. Such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love God. No one, when tempted, should say, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and God tempts no one. And this is the part that is really, I think, significant. But one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. Then when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And that sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved. Ooh. <laughs> My precious, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so <laughs> desire. We want the golden ring, yes? You're not a very enthusiastic bunch, are you? <laughs> anyway, go back to the passage for a moment. Um, the words matter in that uh, many, many translations, m- all of the translations I took the time to look at begin this verse 14 saying one is tempted by one's own lust, being lured and enticed by it. Then when that lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and that sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. I'm like, wait a minute, where's the progression here? It sounds like there's supposed to be a progression from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing, but that gets missed in the translation if you translate The first use of desire as lust. So in the Greek, it's a fancy word, and I spent three years studying Greek and learning everything you could because I thought, if I learned the Bible and learned to exegete passages, I could solve my sin problem. No, it didn't work. Surprise, surprise, I had to go to therapy. And then, of course, because I decided this would be a good career path, I decided to become a therapist. (laughs) But I digress. But one is tempted by one's own desire, epithumia. It's a neutral word that most often is translated in the epistles, lust. But in the Gospels, it's only used a few places. And one is what Jesus said at the Last Supper. I have longed to share this meal with you. I have lusted to share this meal with you. Is that what Jesus was talking about? What was going on with Jesus? I desire to share this meal with you. Desire, being lured and enticed by it. So it seems like there's something there that happens with desire. We get lured and enticed. We get the obsession. We get the oh, the greed. We get we get stirred into a, a, a low road with, with desire. And then something happens in that that it's conceived. So there's a process. We don't go, sin it, a desire in itself is not sin. Desire is a human function that leads us into flourishing, that is designed to lead us to life. And we have to learn. As children, how to manage desire, just like we have to learn as children how to manage strong feelings. Because if you're going to talk about desire, you have to talk about feelings and passion and energy. And I love this song. Love doesn't remain stagnant. It always longs for more. Right? Love is this powerful energy that is leading us to life. That's why Jesus said everything's about love. It all comes back to this, love God, love your neighbor, connect to God's love so you can love your neighbor and your enemy, because you don't have enough human love. You can't manufacture enough love to love the asshole on the street, right? It's just truth, right (laughs) Frankie? So love is a motivating force for life. In fact, one of my favorite theologians, John Lennon says this about love. Um, There are two basic motivating forces, fear and love. When we are afraid, we pull back from life. When we are in love, we are open to all that life has to offer. With passion, excitement, and acceptance, we need to learn to love ourselves first in all our glory and our imperfections. What good theology! If we cannot love ourselves, we cannot fully open to our ability to love others or our potential to create. Evolution and all hopes for a better world rest in the fearlessness and open-hearted vision of people who embrace life. I mean, if we're going to have a statement of belief, I think that should be it for New Abbey, right? (laughs) That great theologian, John Lennon. So when we move toward desire with fear, what happens? Neurologically, we shut down. Um, the brain is made for um, integration and the ability to think clearly about stuff. Our brain has three basic parts. The rear of the brain is the survival automatic function, everything that goes on without our thinking about it. And if you think about your hand, it's like this is the brainstem back here. There's the middle brain and it's like the thumb coming over here, and this is the emotional brain, the amygdala that regulates all our passions, our desires, our emotions, and that's a powerful force for life. It, it regulates hunger, um, it, it registers our body experience, and then the front of the brain, or the orbital cortex, is the executive brain that helps us actually manage all of this. And we'll have to have another sermon on this topic, but. Empathy and the connection of love and feeling felt by another is what integrates the brain and helps the brain develop well so that we can reflect thoughtfully on our experience. When we don't have that capacity and if we're taught to fear our emotional brain and our instincts, we are not able to reflect thoughtfully on our experience. And on top of that, if we're shamed about our desires, which how many people grew up feeling and having a message that said you're, you should be ashamed of wanting an extra candy even? I mean, oh, for Pete's sake, really? <laughs> like how many times did people get the message, you should be ashamed? That whole process of shaming in response to our Woo, I want candy. Woo, look at what my body does. Woo. You know, like, <laughs> that whole, like, whoa, 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 don't talk about that. You know, that the shaming response to life actually has a shearing impact on the brain and dysregulates and shuts down our ability to reflect thoughtfully on our experience. And when that happens over and over again, we become disabled in terms of regulating that life energy, that love energy that is so connected to all of our passions, our affect and all. So if that happens to us, we end up often living in survival mode. And survival mode is all about avoiding pain, seeking pleasure, and trying to find a stable identity by being good enough by accommodating to the expectations of others. So some of us, how many uh, avoid pain by control people do we have in the crowd today? You, you know, if you just control your reality, you don't have to feel pain. Some people, uh, achievement, you know, you're, you're going to achieve and you're going to succeed and get the A's and all that. It's another way we try to avoid pain. Um, some of us, uh, like myself, are pleasure seekers. Uh, we seek pleasure as a way to avoid pain and do self-soothing. You know, as a little kid, I ate. You know, it was like, oh, food, yum. You know, and I end up with a lot of excess stored energy, and I got kind of chubby. And you know, and then of course I got shamed about that, which really complicated things. But that's also another story, so I won't digress and tell you that one either. But you get my point, right? We we find ways to self-soothe. Um, Later on, it became, huh, pot, I like that, you know, (laughs) and in in junior high, there were some I was hanging out with the edgy, another way you do it is by social acceptance, you know, we find our identity, we survive by uh, having people like us and knowing how to navigate relationships and, uh, and, and be with people, so peer pressure. You know, junior high, I was hanging with the edgy kids, and the edgy kids were like, oh, we'd get sneak alcohol from our parents and bring it to the party and put it in the punch, and we were very edgy. And then people found pot and oh, we smoked some pot. And then one summer, I found a stash of pot in my brother's room. He would come home from college, and I was like, ooh, like there were like four ounces there. And I was just like, I called my friend Kim, hey, Kim, I found some pot in my brother's room. She's like, oh, you should take some. Oh, okay, I'll get some. So we spent the summer pinching my brother's stash and getting high. You know, it's like, but it worked. In the midst of a family where my dad and mom were, my dad had left, my mom was drinking herself to bed every night and taking uh, prescription medications. It was, I was this crazy life. I was sad, I was struggling, I was lonely. I felt uncomfortable in my body, but I had friends and I had pot and I could regulate my life that way. Of course, it really inhibited my human thriving and development, um, but that's the problem, you know, when we're living in survival stance. So we can avoid pain and seek pleasure and try to be good enough, but that does not lead to human flourishing. It's not that smoking pot and there's anything wrong with it, but when you're 15, it's probably not a great idea because your brain is still developing. Now all of you, you know, now that you're adults, you can smoke all the pot you want, but you're always going to worry about it. Well, maybe you would worry about it, maybe you should worry about it. I'm not sure, that's for you to think through and reflect on with love. (laughs) For human flourishing, we need to look at our lives with curiosity, our desires, our longings, our passions, with curiosity. Like, oh, what is this desire arising in me? with openness, like an openness to not, not fearing desire or anger or strong emotion, but being open to what it's telling us about our lives. Acceptance, that this is my human condition. Sometimes I feel like shit, and I just want to eat, drink, and be merry. And you know what? OK. That's OK. You have permission to do that. If you build a lifestyle of doing that, it will not lead to your flourishing. That's the problem. You know, we all need to eat a pint of Ben and Jerry's occasionally or drink 12 drinks and throw up the next morning because that's really fun. So how, if we're going to flourish, we need to respond with curiosity, openness, acceptance, and love to our own impulses, our energies, this non-stagnant life force that lives within all of us. Um, what do you desire? You desire respect. You desire success. You desire nice things. You desire money. $3,000. dollars Woohoo! Yes! Wouldn't we all like to have been in that? pass that day. It's nothing wrong with it, but how do we respond? Do we respond to ourselves with love, acceptance, openness, kindness, or do we respond with fear, shame? And another sneaky one is greed. When we have an emptiness, a deep emptiness inside, greed is my precious. It sneaks up and it takes it takes what I want, regardless of the cost to anyone else. And that, I think, we see at work in our systems today, in the world around us. People building their barns and their storehouses bigger and bigger and bigger, without consideration for the rest of the people on the planet. People consuming plastics and, you know, just mindlessly going through life. So, To bring this around to today, I want to talk about sex. Um, I want to talk about my sex and my sex life. Oh, good. Corey's like, oh, shit, I hope she wasn't going to do this. But the fact that a lot of us may be struggling with sexual desire and the longing for love and relationship. And since Dave died, you know, it was great to be married to someone for 30 years because you don't have to think about that. It's just set up. I mean, you do have to think about it. And there were years where we really should have thought about it more because things were kind of getting a little slow there. With, with Dave on antidepressants, me getting my hip replaced, you know, there wasn't a lot of action for a while. But <laughs> Now Corey's back. They're going, oh, God. <laughs> um, but... Shortly after he died, and I was, well, within the first few months, after about a couple months, I was at the Rose Bowl swimming, and I found myself looking at all the men's bodies, you know? And I had not done that really. I mean, sometimes I would do that, but not... (laughs) (laughs) Not the same way! Uh, And found myself with desire and a little kind of arousal and being like, "Huh, a body, I miss a body. So somewhere uh, along the way, probably in about May, I I decided to get online and look at these apps because I knew eventually I want to be with someone. Well, that was interesting. I'm like, oh yeah, this is I I feel y'all, all you singles, yeah, I get this. So now I'm with you in this process. Well, I did, I did start in earnest uh, a few months ago around, uh, I forget when, my friend Ashley, who's in her 30s, we, we were talking about this dating thing, and she says, oh, you need to get on Hinge. So I'm like, okay, Hinge. <laughs> Any Hingers out there? Um, and I don't know if you know, but on Hinge, it has this little age range preference, and you, there's a thing, is, the, is this a deal breaker? Well, I hadn't plugged that. So the first Hinge person that shows up 22-year-old African, African-American kid with a message. You want to hook up? <laughs> and I'm like, woo. <laughs> it <was> scared me. <laughs> I'm like, well, what do you do with a 22-year-old? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> you, maybe I need to talk to some of you 22-year-olds who can help me with that. Um, Anyway, I turned that button off, (laughs) but eventually, Ashley said, no, you really should expand your range, you know, it's not just 47 to 67. There might be some younger men, I'm like, okay, let's play with it. And I got got a lot of hits, it was pretty exciting. (laughs) I don't know what's going on with these 20-something-year-old men, but it's a little like, I think we need a seminar on that. To do a workshop in the fall for all you guys that are looking for older women and explain some things to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. So I get this hit, and the guy says, You are gorgeous. And I'm like, well, Yeah. <laughs> See, I'm modeling how to respond with curiosity, openness, acceptance, and love to your desires, your life force. So, and I scroll down, and this guy's name is Chad. <laughs> He's 28. He's 28, and I mean, Joy, Amanda, and McKenzie saw Chad. <laughs> You are tempted when (laughs) you are enticed by your desire, Mackenzie. Okay, so Chad says to me, I say to Chad, um, you know, oh, well, thank you, Chad. You're pretty good-looking yourself. And then he writes back two fingers-crossed emojis. Please tell me you're interested in younger men. And I'm like, well, I'm interested. Maybe not in the way you think. But I'm like experimenting, so I say, I'm very interested. I'm curious about your attraction to older women. And he says, he says, well, I've always been attracted to older women. I find that there's no drama. They know what they want, and they have a high sex drive like me. And I'm like, ooh la la, Chad. And, and then I said, full honesty, I lost my husband uh, a year ago, but I'm exploring this whole new world. And then he says, "He says I, I'm sorry to hear about that, and I'd be happy to help you in any way I can. <laughs> anyway, the point being, <laughs> I have not called Chad. He gave me his number. I have not set up an appointment, but. <laughs> ready for that. But I thought, what what would love do with this desire I have? And how does love respond to a 28-year-old young man who's like finding his sexual satisfaction with older women like me? Like that just strikes me as not really human flourishing. I mean, for me and my values. Greed would take what I want regardless of the cost to others. But love considers the other Love says, how is my following my life force going to impact someone else? That's what love does, right? So the question for you to consider as we get in groups, how is your response to desire helping and or hindering you and perhaps others? Enjoy. <laughs>